This morning, we will continue our study of Matthew chapter 10, and actually we come to the last character of the apostles, Judas Iscariot. And rather than having you turn to Matthew 10 and verse 4 just to read his name, I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 12. And in a few minutes, we will embark upon some texts within that chapter to understand more of this individual. Thus far, we have seen in our study of the men that Jesus shaped, how God comes along and transforms common, ordinary men into servants that can be useful for his kingdom. Men that recognized their sin and recognized their need for the Savior and followed Jesus as his true disciples, men that were teachable and men that were humble. But not all disciples are this way. Many follow Jesus for completely selfish reasons. Even many today in the evangelical church follow Jesus not because they see him as the savior of their sins, but rather they see him as the meter of their needs. They know nothing of Jesus as Lord of their life, but rather they see him as a cosmic butler that exists to heed the snap of their finger. Judas Iscariot was such a man. He is the quintessential hypocrite, a man with unprecedented opportunity that spent time with the incarnate Christ, sat at the feet of God himself, yet he squandered it all. He refused to humble his heart in genuine contrition. And he is a great example of a man that followed Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And it is fitting that God would have chosen him, knowing full well the treachery of his heart, because in so doing, he provides for us a vivid illustration of the power and the process of hypocrisy to warn us all about the deceitfulness of the human heart. And as we think about the church of Jesus Christ down through the years, we know that it has always been plagued with hypocrites, those who profess Christ but do not possess him. Jesus described them in John 15 as branches that attach themselves to the true vine in a superficial way. They claim to know Christ. They claim to follow Christ. They claim to be united with Christ. And through external conformity, they deceive themselves and others into thinking that they are true Christians. But as that text says, they bear no fruit and therefore they are cut off and thrown into the fire. Well, today we look at the life of Judas Iscariot, the world's greatest failure, the world's greatest loser, the apostle who betrayed the Son of God, a man who refused to allow Jesus to shape his heart, and consequently his heart became hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. Today is a timely warning for our culture, especially our Christian culture, that tends to be so cozy and so comfy with respect to our Christianity. 
We live in a culture that is bombarded with materialism. We are an entertainment crazed people, and it is a breeding ground for hypocrisy, for superficial Christians that are as shallow as water on a plate. And they fill up churches by the thousands around our nation. It was the same in the late 1800s in England. Charles Spurgeon addressed his congregation one morning. And here's what he had to say. And I quote, the minister may cease to preach this doctrine in the days of persecution. When the faggots are blazing and when the rack is in full operation, few men will be hypocrites. These are the keen detectors of impostures, suffering and pain and death for Christ's sake are not to be endured by mere pretenders. But in this silken age, when to be religious is to be respectable, when to follow Christ is to be honored. And when godliness itself has become gain, it is doubly necessary that the minister should cry aloud and lift up his voice like a trumpet against the sin, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. As we examine his life, the life of Judas, we will learn this morning something about the slippery slope of hypocrisy. We will see again the telltale signs of a phony Christian, the marks of a hypocrite. And dear friends, my sincere prayer for you this morning has been all week that those who clearly would fall into this category, and you know who you are, that you will shudder at the state of your soul and repent before it's too late. Judas Iscariot reveals his name. Judas Iscariot. It tells about the region from which he came. The Hebrew ish means man and Kiriath means man of Kiriath. And that was a little village in southern Judea. He was not from Galilee like the other men. Yet he was another ordinary man without any outstanding credentials. And as we examine his life, we can surmise that he followed Jesus for some earthly, not heavenly, personal benefit. He, of course, would have been a Jew, and he, like all the Jews of that day, were anticipating the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and to clean out the Romans and to free them from Roman oppression. And certainly Judas would have seen all of Jesus' miracles, and he knew, boy, this is him. And in his heart, he's thinking, you know, I really want to cash in on this deal. I want to be here when he sets up the kingdom. And like all hypocrites, he saw some other benefit than salvation from sin. And it was for that reason that he followed Christ. Hypocrites are never amazed at their sin. Therefore, they will never be amazed at the grace of God. They are in love with themselves and in love with the world. And they will pursue anything that will somehow satisfy those lusts. We know nothing about the family background of Judas. All we know is that Jesus chose him, according to John fifteen sixteen. He chose him not for salvation, but he chose him for betrayal, a treachery that was even ordained before the foundation of the world and clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. In Psalm 55 and beginning in verse 12, we read about this where 
The text literally foretells the eventual betrayal of Judas. There we read, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. And Jesus described this even further in John thirteen eighteen, when he quoted the messianic prophecy found in Psalm 41, 9. That speaks of a friend's betrayal. There we read, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And in Matthew 27, verses 9 through 10, Matthew refers to another Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 11, beginning in verse 12. A prophecy that goes into even greater detail concerning the Lord's betrayal. And there, if we were to look at it in detail, we would just simply see that Zechariah symbolically asks the covenant people, what do you think your Messiah is worth? And we are given a picture of the price that was eventually paid to Judas. And there in that text in Zechariah 11, beginning in verse 12, we read, they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter and print that princely price that's set on me. They said on me, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And indeed, after Judas betrayed the Lord, he, as you will recall, returned the money to the priests and threw it down at their feet. But it's interesting, since it was considered blood money, money illegitimately paid and then returned to falsely convict an innocent man of a crime that sentenced him to death. Somehow in their perverted, calloused, hypocritical hearts, deceived by every imaginable form of hypocrisy, they could not bring themselves to return the money to the temple treasury from which it came. And so they purchased the potter's field, exactly as Zechariah prophesied, a defiled place where they buried travelers there in Jerusalem, where they buried the indigent and the ungodly, the very field where Judas Judas hanged himself, later on known as the field of blood. Dear friends, the predetermined purposes of God never cease to amaze me. To think that he decrees what he will and he does it. Even with regard to Judas, Jesus said in Luke 22 and verse 22, truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It is fascinating to think Jesus knew all along about Judas, Judas's wicked heart, yet he chose him. In John 6, beginning in verse 70, we read, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's fascinating to think that even the wicked machinations of a hypocrite are foreordained by a sovereign God. Jesus came to earth to live and to die and to be raised from the dead. And Judas, though fully responsible for his choices, merely played into God's sovereign plan of redemption. And yet it's interesting, even though Jesus knew all of this about Judas, not one time did Jesus ever speak an unkind word to him. The good shepherd never one time offered him anything but love and mercy and grace. Jesus knew his heart of greed. He knew that he was 
skimming money out of their little treasury. He knew about his selfish ambition to cash in on the kingdom. He knew precisely the, the diabolical nature of this hypocrite. He knew of Satan's plans for him, and yet he maintained an attitude of perfect love for his enemy. And friends, might I add that Jesus has never one time given anyone a reason to hate him. Yet he remains the most hated person in the history of the world. The text reveals much to us about Judas. First of all, think with me again. He was the master hypocrite. No doubt he had convinced himself of his own self-righteousness. After all, he was a Jew. And that many of the Jews thought that simply because they were a Jew, they were righteous before God. And as I think about it, only those who are seasoned in their own self-righteousness make good hypocrites. Those who have convinced themselves of their goodness. But it's interesting that never one time, as you read about Judas and the others, never one time do the others suspect him as a traitor. They don't even suspect him of skimming money. Not even after he left the upper room to strike his deal with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus in the garden. No one knew but Jesus. As I said earlier, in, in that day of heightened messianic expectations, Judas saw his chance to cash in on the coming kingdom, to get on the inside track, to maybe get a political appointment. Obviously, he knew Jesus was the Messiah. All those miracles confirmed that. But as we examine the text, we begin to see something interesting developing in the heart of this hypocrite. We begin to see that Judas's patience was wearing thin. He had been three years with Jesus and all he sees is this humility and love and compassion and servitude. And no doubt he was saying to himself, when is he going to attack the Romans? Enough is enough. Enough of this humility, enough of this turning the other cheek. Let's see some head rolls, heads roll here. Let, let's see the kingdom brought in. I want to receive my reward. But all I hear are these parables about forgiveness and the love of money and hypocrisy and parables about greed and pride and eating his flesh and drinking his. Come on, let's whoop up on these Romans and bring in the kingdom. So by the time Jesus and the twelve head to Jerusalem after three years of ministry, Judas's, temp, uh, Judas's sense of humor is beginning to wear thin and his patience is wearing thin and his spiritual masquerade is almost over. He's getting increasingly frustrated with Jesus. And before we look at the text, may I just remind you of one other concept Hypocrites cannot stand it when their agenda is ignored or in any way thwarted. Remember, life is all about me, they will think, not God and his glory. Because, dear friends, at the core of hypocrisy is pride and selfish ambition. Now, let's look at John 12. You remember the context. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And the twelve now are having a meal in the home of Simon the leper along with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And look what we read here in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure, of, of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? You see, friends, again, he's at his wits end here. His patience has all but disappeared. You see, a denarii was one day's wage and 300 denarius would have been almost a year's salary. You see, this would have been a lot of money for Judas to pilfer through. And of course, he hides his true motives and offers instead a phony rationale, one that sounds noble. He's got to keep up his godly image. In fact, in Matthew 26, 8, we read that all of the rest of the apostles even agreed with him. And it was only some time later that the inspired apostle John comments on what Judas was really up to in verses six through eight. Verse six, we read. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus, therefore, said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Isn't it interesting how Jesus responded to Judas with such such kindness? And yet he knew exactly what he was saying to Judas. He said exactly what Judas did not want to hear. What is all this stuff about your burial that you're not going to be with us much longer? What about the kingdom? After all, I've been waiting. Obviously, he's not going to say all of that because he doesn't want to blow his cover. You know, this incident must have been the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas because Immediately after this, Matthew's gospel tells us in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Isn't it interesting? Originally, His unrestrained and unsatisfied lusts energized his hypocrisy, causing him to attach himself to Jesus and to spirituality. But now those same unrestrained, unsatisfied lusts are inflamed with resentment, motivating him to do the unthinkable. Now we witness, dear friends, the wrath of divine abandonment where God gives him over to a worthless mind, as we read in Romans chapter 1. When God finally gets enough of it with a person who refuses to worship him and to give him glory, and he gives them over, paradidomai in the original language, it was a judicial term, and it was used to describe someone being given over to an executioner. What a tragedy. His wicked heart could have been pardoned, but instead it has been hardened and he is now given over. And as I think about it, he must now take the wine cup of divine fury from the hand whom he has betrayed. And he's got to drink all of it now. And he, like all of the wicked who hate God, will drink and stagger and go mad, according to Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. 
You see, he is now being given over completely to the consequences of his wickedness. He has sown the wind and now he will reap the whirlwind. And next we see something very interesting that happens in the upper room. We see how the cloak of hypocrisy can be worn with such ease. It is so clever. It is so deceptive. You see, Judas now has already gotten his precious 30 pieces of silver and he goes back to join his unwitting friends, his comrades and the Lord himself in the upper room. No one is expecting him to do anything and no one suspects him. But Jesus knows precisely what is going on. Look what happens. What happens in John 13 in John 13, beginning in verse two. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Dear friends, this is astonishing, isn't it? He's washing the feet of the disciples, even the betrayer. Later on in verse 10, you read, Jesus says to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And, of course, what he was referring to there, as you will recall, Peter was confused with Jesus washing his feet. And he was saying, I don't want you to do that. I'll wash your feet. And he was confused about what was happening here. But Jesus was helping him understand the, the difference between justification and sanctification. And in verse 10, he's saying that he who has been bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, he who has been bathed, a symbol for salvation, doesn't need to be born again again. You've already been justified, but you need to continue to wash your feet. That's the issue of sanctification. There needs to be an ongoing confession of sin. But the point that I'm trying to make in verse 10, he is saying, in essence, he who has salvation needs only to confess his sin, but is completely clean. And you are clean. In other words, you are saved, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Your friends, another mark of a hypocrite is their astounding callousness of heart. Judas is now sitting there allowing the incarnate God to wash his feet. An inconceivable display of divine humility. And he knows full well, Jesus knows full well that he's going to betray him. And Judas just sits there and allows the Lord to serve him as if he expects it. How different the attitude of Peter, who was overwhelmed with his unworthiness, but not so the hypocrite. Oh, dear friends, never underestimate the power of the flesh when it joins forces with the devil. For therein lies a force that is so diabolically wicked as to justify the very betrayal of God himself. I've seen this before. 
the self-deception of hypocrisy. It is so exceedingly powerful. It is so ingenious. A hypocrite can justify any action, any thought, any, any deed at all. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.2, their conscience has been seared as with a branding iron. Nothing you can say to them reaches them. They are utterly self-absorbed. They are like what the psychologists who are ignorant of biblical truth would call the narcissistic person, giving them the label of a narcissistic personality disorder. Those that see themselves as better than everyone else. The rules don't apply to me. I deserve more. And of course, this is pandemic and powerful, wealthy corporate America with executives. It's through and through with politicians, Hollywood stars. It's also ubiquitous in the Christian entertainment world. The Bible doesn't call it a narcissistic personality disorder. As if somehow you have no control over it. It just calls it foolish pride. Hypocrites that are seared in their conscience. In Proverbs 26, 12, we read, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And in Isaiah 65, in verse 5, God speaks through the, prophets and, through the prophet and says, Hypocrites say, Keep to yourself and do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. God says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. In other words, your phony burnt offerings are an irritant to my nose, and it will only result in judgment. And yet, dear friends, this was the heart of Judas, even as the Lord washed his feet. Well, the text gets more specific about his betrayal in verse 18. Notice what we read there in John 13, verse 18. He says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, which, by the way, again, was a reference back to Psalm 41, 9, the Old Testament prophecy speaking about the betrayal. And the Lord quotes that here in verse 19. He says, from now on, I am telling you. Before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And then in verse 21, we begin to get more of a glimpse into the Lord's heart in the upper room. Imagine what must have been going on. The enormous emotional turmoil that was eating at him, knowing that Satan now had entered Judas and there he was. Notice verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. It's fascinating, isn't it? Jesus, the incarnate God, being troubled in spirit. What an understatement. You see, the term means that Jesus was mentally and spiritually agitated. And dear friends, there is nothing more toxic to Christian fellowship than a hypocrite. It is utterly heart-wrenching. And it is especially hard when you may be the only one who knows who he is or what he is all about. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. In other words, in some spiritual enterprise, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial? As we go back to John 13 
We see more of what was going on with Jesus and the disciples become confused. Look in verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Of course, he's referring to John here. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered him. And Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Isn't it amazing? Judas is able to keep up the act all the way to the end. And we know that he had been planning this for days, but because he was a coward, according to Luke 22 and verse 6, he was waiting for the right opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of the multitude, for he was afraid what the others might do. It's important also for you to remember that Jesus made sure that the first incident of the Lord's Supper that we have celebrated even here this morning was not polluted with hypocrisy. Isn't that interesting? He excuses Judas and Satan, who had now fully possessed him. And he asked them to leave before he began. Well, you remember the story. Turn to John 18 and we will see what happens. Judas knew where Jesus would go to pray along with the other disciples. It would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John chapter 18 and verse 3, we read, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Isn't that interesting? He goes on to say, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. I am he. Ego a me. A term, dear friends, that the Lord used re- repeatedly as a declaration of his deity. You remember back in Exodus chapter three, when the Lord had called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Exodus, he said to God, he said, God, they're going to ask me, who is sending me? Who is God? What is your name? And you remember what the Lord said. He said, I am who I am. Say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent 
me to you. In other words, that term, as you will recall, means that he is the pre-existent, the self-existent, the eternal God, the one who is, the one who will be, the one whose name is translated as the ineffable Tetragrammaton, the two wondrous to utter from the lips four letters, Yahweh. And so the, the cohort comes to him. A group of 600 soldiers along with Jesus, I mean, with Judas, and they come to Jesus and Jesus comes out to meet them. And he says that I am he. In other words, I am the great I am. And when they hear the sound of that, isn't it amazing that they all fall back? Just the sound of the name. The power that comes forth from the Son of the living God. I am King Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the true and the living God. Oh, dear friends, what a glorious manifestation of both His power and His mercy. Because at a moment He could have incinerated them all. As Isaiah 11.4 says, He will strike the earth someday with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And oh, dear friends, what a foretaste of his next appearance when he comes not in humility but in glory. And yet even with such a miraculous display of his omnipotence, they continued to move forward to arrest the Son of God. It's inconceivable. It's like the homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember those who were judicially blinded because of the depth of their depravity. So too Judas and the soldiers wearied themselves to do evil. Staggering wickedness. Judas, the most colossal failure in the history of the world, now fully under the power of Satan, steps forward to betray the Lord Jesus with a kiss. Matthew 26 and verse 49 tells us that he immediately went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And in Luke twenty-two forty-eight, we read that Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, Judas, does your hypocrisy have no bounds? Will you profane the Passover night with such diabolical treachery? Judas, will you betray your Creator God with an act of love? Would you pay homage to your God and your king with a kiss of death? And obviously the answer was yes. And you ask, how could this be? How could a person be so incredibly deceived? Dear friends, God will draw a line in a hypocrite's life. And when a hypocrite crosses over that line, God will judicially seal him in the insanity of his sin. Even as we've discussed in Romans 1, he will give him over to a worthless mind. A mind that has no conscience. Dear friends, when a man's self-worship fills the cup of divine forbearance to the brim, it will overflow into the wrath of divine abandonment. And that's precisely what we see happening here with Judas as Romans 1.28 says, God will give them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. 
In other words, their reasoning faculties will be so destroyed that they will go mad pursuing their sin. And this is exactly what happened to Judas. After the betrayal, he found himself incarcerated in the torments of a hell on earth, a hell that he had foolishly chosen. And in utter agony, now experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment, according to Matthew 27 and verse 3, we read, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. If I can digress for a moment, because this is so important. I've heard some people say, isn't it great that Judas got saved? Friends, the word remorseful here, which is translated repented in the King James Version, has produced some understandable confusion. And the King James, the King James um, Version translation repenting or repented is a misleading rendering. And I can understand why it would cause someone to erroneously believe that Judas was genuinely repentant of his sin and therefore born again. And this is most unfortunate that the, the new King James is a better translation. It uses the term remorseful. You see, the Greek term rendered remorseful or repentant here in Matthew 27, three is a term meta which merely connotes regret or remorse or sorrow. It's not a genuine repentance prompted by God in the heart of the redeemed. And had Matthew intended to convey to us that he had genuinely repented and that that repentance was therefore prompted by God, a sincere brokenness over his sin, he would have used another term, metanaeo. And metanaeo means to have a deep spiritual penitence that would cause someone to experience brokenness of heart because they have offended a holy God and they would cause them to confess their sin to him. And that's the stuff of genuine repentance. But the point is simply this. Judas did not experience a genuine contrition, metanaeo, but rather a mere remorse, metaloomai, prompted by his own excruciating guilt. Two very different kinds of sorrows and repentances. You read more about that, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. But on another note, I want you to realize that Judas would have been terrified to have truly repented, even though by the power of the Spirit of God he could have done it. But here's why. Had he admitted that he had been a false witness against Jesus, he would have been guilty of a crime punishable by the penalty imposed upon the one whom he had falsely convicted, namely crucifixion. You read about that in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19. But yet the horrors of what he had done drove him to murder himself. And according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 5, we read that he went out and he hanged himself. And Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, adds even more graphic details. Evidently, the limb or the rope, one broke, we don't know for sure. But the text says that in falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. What a tragic ending. In fact, this was the last word we read about Judas in all of Scripture. And as I thought about this, I thought, my, how symbolic of the power of sin to destroy the inner man. 
And here Judas falls headlong and is literally split in two, forcing his wicked entrails to spew forth from his torso onto the earth that he so dearly loved. No, dear friends, Judas never sought forgiveness from God. He never cried out for undeserved mercy and grace. Had he done so, he would have received it instantly. Jesus made that clear in John 6:37 that anyone who comes to him he will certainly in no wise cast out. And as we close this morning having reflected upon this exceedingly wicked individual may I briefly remind you of the character of a self-righteous fool and the slippery slope of hypocrisy. Think about it. Again the heart of hypocrisy can be understood when we understand that people will have some kind of a lust of the flesh and because of that lust of the flesh whatever it may be they will superficially attach themselves to Christ and to some church they will be drawn away by their desires according to James 1:15 Judas for example was drawn away by his selfishness his worldly ambition his avarice which is an insatiable appetite for riches for he was greedy but other people may have different kinds of lusts and therefore energize their attachment to Christ and to the church for some people it is loneliness they need to be a part of a group they want to feel needed they want to feel wanted they want to find a mate or whatever other people i know come to church and become a quote christian because they need to network their business some come because they think that they're going to receive some physical healing or some personal miracle that will resolve some issue in their life maybe a better marriage or a better job or just to become more prosperous financially others want to be seen they want to be in control they want to be a big fish in a little pond they seek the glory of men so they come to a church and they want to visible role in leadership maybe in music maybe in teaching whatever it might be some attach themselves for other lusts like those of the sexual predators others will maybe want to make money off of naive christians this is rampant by the way in contemporary christian and gospel music for some people they're unsuccessful in every area of life and they just don't know what to do with themselves so they feel the call to become a missionary or a pastor or a youth leader or a worship leader for other people it's just the cultural traditional thing to do they don't want to be unsociable they don't want to be out of sync with their friends and family and of course this is what you do on Sundays in the south you go to church Some people come because of benevolence. They need financial help and you'll see them hopping from church to church. But friends, whatever the lust is, the point is many times the hypocrite will attach themselves like Judas did to Christ in a superficial way. And here begins the slippery slope. Let me give it to you very quickly. It begins with religiosity. There is a religious affiliation that gives them some illusion of spirituality. they begin to attend services they learn the lingo of the people they adopt the customs they externally externally act like christians and perhaps there's even been some reform 
But like Jesus said of the Pharisees, they just clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. But on the inside, they're full of robbery and wickedness. Or like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.12, they glory in appearance only. You'll see them at times teaching Bible studies, filling pulpits. Oh, it needs sometimes they will love to pontificate on spiritual matters and often they will do so with great eloquence. But not to equip the saints or exalt the Savior, but rather to somehow satisfy some lust of the eye, some lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Many times they will love to hammer on some some pet doctrine to further convince them of their own spiritual superiority. By the way, you remember even Peter and Barnabas. Men who knew Christ got got caught up in making their own personal preferences dogma, causing a break in fellowship. According to Paul in Galatians 2, they played the hypocrite. Remember, Paul had to oppose them to the face. But because most hypocrites are unsaved, nothing is there in their life to restrain the flesh. They hold to a form of godliness, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 5, although they have denied its power. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew 15, verse 7, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, the religiosity moves to the second step in that slippery slope, and that is of resentment. You see, gradually resentment builds in the heart of the hypocrite. They watch other Christians struggling with issues and dealing with them in ways that bring honor to the Lord and bring joy to them. And they feel guilty. They begin to despise God. They begin to despise their godly friends. They resent the truth. They will run from the light of Scripture. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But because of their Herculean efforts to justify their own sin, they will bristle at the word of God whenever it's confrontive. So the religiosity moves to resentment. And then finally, thirdly, I should say it moves to rancor. They will become angry and they will become divisive, even as we saw in the life of Judas. There will be jealousy and strife. They will begin to slander other people. They will devise evil against the Lord and his people. They will garner support from others who will support their cause. By the way, it's common in every religious system, every church throughout history. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. In other words, dissensions become a test to separate wheat from the chaff. And this happened with Judas and the others. And ultimately, they become willfully blind and God hardens their heart, which produces the final stage. And that is ruin. They go because of some lust to religiosity. They move to resentment. They move to rancor and then finally to ruin. And Jesus summarized the ruin of Judas's life with these poignant words in Mark chapter 14 and verse 21, where he said, It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Oh, dear friends, I pray that you will examine your heart. 
Don't think you can fool God. You might fool me. You might fool your husband or your wife or your kids, at least for a while, and others. But you won't fool God. So I ask you in all humility, but forthrightly, repent of your hypocrisy while there is still time. Let's pray together. Father, as we examine our hearts before you right now, we confess that it is only by your grace that we are even able to examine our hearts. And I pray that you will pour out your mercy and your grace upon those who worship you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. God, thank you for the truth of your word. And again, I pray that somehow it will change us forever, beginning this day. And then finally, Lord, I would just pray to you as your servant that you would bring conviction to anyone who is within the sound of my voice that does not know you as Savior. Maybe they know you as that cosmic butler or that great teacher or that great philosopher, but they have never rushed into your presence and said, Oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that the conviction will be so great that they will be miserable until they experience the miracle of the new birth when they repent of their sins. Lord, be merciful to them, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.